For this episode, I was casting about, I was seeking someone to help me describe what narcissism is. What is narcissism? We have such an important topic here. Who could I bring in to paint a picture of narcissism? I wondered, I thought, I pondered, and finally, I found a candidate. The very talented and wonderful Mr. Toad from Kenneth Graham's 1908 novel, The Wind in the Willows. Mr. Toad embodies overt narcissism. He is an expert in the lived experience of narcissism. So, let us listen to him describe narcissism in his own words when he sings a song of himself, a song of Toad. The world has held great heroes, as history books have showed, but never a name to go down to fame compared to that of Toad. The clever men at Oxford know all there is to be knowed, but they, none of them, know one half as much as intelligent Mr. Toad. The animals sat in the ark and cried, Their tears in torrents flowed. Who was it, said, there's land ahead, encouraging Mr. Toad. The army all saluted as they marched along the road. Was it the king or Kitchener? No, it was Mr. Toad. The queen and her ladies-in-waiting sat at the window and sewed. She cried, look, who's that handsome man? They answered, Mr. Toad. The motor car went poop, poop, poop as it raced along the road. Who was it steered it into a pond? Ingenious Mr. Toad. Today, with the help of Mr. Toad, we are exploring narcissism. We are going into a much deeper understanding of the who, the what, the why, and the how of narcissism. It is good for us to be together. I am glad that you are here listening today. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, a.k.a. Dr. Peter. I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast episode, and it is both an honor and a pleasure to spend time with you. I am here for one primary reason. That is to help you taste and see the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light and the goodness of the love of God, especially God the Father and Mary our Mother, who are your spiritual parents, who are my spiritual parents, our primary parents. I am here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God and Mary. That is what this podcast is all about, and we do that here on this podcast and in souls and hearts more generally, by shoring up the natural human foundation for the spiritual life. We know from St. Thomas Aquinas that grace perfects nature. We are all about offering you the best resources on your human formation. And to bring that about, to live out our mission, I bring you new ways of understanding yourself, new ways of understanding others, fresh conceptualizations informed by the best of human formation resources in psychology firmly grounded in the perennial teachings of the Catholic Church. 
In episodes 116 and 117, I've been discussing how the concept of a single homogenous monolithic personality is too limited to help us fully understand ourselves and each other. It's just too limited to think of ourselves as having just one single monolithic homogenous personality. Nevertheless, there's a lot of good to be gleaned from secular understandings of personality styles and personality disorders. Why? Because we need that kind of information to better love other people, to better love ourselves. Today, in episode 118 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, which is released on August 7th, 2023, we are taking on this major topic, this important topic of narcissism. The title of this episode, 118, is Narcissism, Who, What, Why, and How? The Secular Experts Share Their Views. This episode, number 119, is the first in our sub-series on narcissistic styles, it will take us no fewer than six episodes to more fully explore this topic of narcissism. And why so much time and energy on narcissism? Because it is so common, because it's such a major concern for so many people. I get so many calls, so many emails from my listeners, from readers of my weekly reflections that bring up this topic of narcissism. So let's get into it. Those of you that are listeners those of you that are regular listeners of this podcast, you know how keen I am on definitions about making specific what we're talking about. And narcissism is one of those terms that can just be bandied about very carelessly, very thoughtlessly, very imprecisely. So what does the American Psychological Association Dictionary of Psychology have to say about narcissism? It says, quote, Excessive self-love or egocentrism. In psychoanalytic theory, the taking of one's ego or body as a sexual object or focus of the libido or the seeking or choice of another for relational purposes on the basis of his or her similarity to the self. End quote. There's so many reasons I don't like this definition. First of all, we'll get into this in a bit. Excessive self-love, it's not an accurate understanding of what narcissism actually is. And the second part here is an outdated, more Freudian understanding of narcissism as being this cathecting with sexual energy, either the self or one's own body, one's own ego, or somebody else. I don't think that's really what's driving this. So let's get rid of that. Let's go to Wikipedia. Wikipedia says, quote, narcissism is a self-centered personality style characterized as having an excessive preoccupation with oneself and one's own need, often at the expense of others. Narcissism is a self-centered personality style characterized as having an excessive preoccupation with oneself and one's own needs, often at the expense of others. Okay, this is better. We're getting closer here. We're getting closer here. But let's get to something even better. And this is from psychologist Nancy McWilliams' book, psychoanalytic diagnosis. That book originally came out in 1994. It was published with the second edition in 2011. And I think this is the very best book for understanding personality styles. I really believe it's the best. It's this, this is the book that I assigned to dozens of my practicum students throughout the years who worked in my practice 
learning to do psychological diagnosis, learning to do case conceptualization, learning to write psychological reports, to do psychological testing, and really to learn to understand the inner experience of their clients, what's actually happening dynamically, what's actually going on structurally within clients. This book is clear, it's concise, it's very well written, and it makes the concepts, the psychoanalytic concepts of personality really accessible to the lay reader. So I highly recommend that book. She writes on page 176 that, quote, the term narcissistic refers to people whose personalities are organized around maintaining their self-esteem by getting affirmation from outside themselves. This goes right to the core of narcissistic personality styles. Narcissistic refers to people whose personalities are organized around maintaining their self-esteem by getting affirmation from outside themselves. This is the central issue, low self-esteem. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more about what that actually means. And the way that that low self-esteem needs to be dealt with is by being affirmed by securing affirmation from other people. She goes on to write that terms like, quote, narcissistic personality and, quote, pathological narcissism apply to this disproportionate degree of self-concern, not to ordinary responsiveness to approval and sensitivity to criticism, end quote. So she's making this distinction between pathological narcissism, which has this very intense preoccupation with getting narcissistic supplies, with getting that affirmation, with getting that approval, with getting the compliments from other people. Let's go back to the myth of narcissists. All right. So the myth of narcissists. Narciss narcissist was a hunter from Thespiae who, according to the 12th century Byzantine poet and writer, John Zizi, narcissists rejected all romantic advances from would-be lovers and wives and he fell in love with his own reflection in a pool of water, believing it was another man. Thus, Narcissus became engrossed in looking at his own image as he wasted away, suffering from, suffering from unrequited self-love, neither eating nor drinking, until he died. The end. Sad story. Well, this idea of falling in love with yourself... Again, going back to that APA Dictionary of Psychology definition, I think it's so not accurate. Drew Pinsky said, quote, Narcissism is not about self-love. It's a clinical trait that belies a deep sense of emptiness, low self-esteem, emotional detachment, self-loathing, and extreme problems with intimacy, end quote. And Christopher Lash Another author said that, quote, narcissism has more in common with self-hatred than with self-admiration, end quote. It's really important when we're addressing this topic of narcissism to get behind, to get below the surface impressions, to not just be taken in with what's presented on the outside, but to understand what's happening at depth. Narcissism is not about self-love. I totally agree with Drupinski on this. And we're going to find out more about why. But before we do that, let's go to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, where it gives us the official American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Criteria for Narcissistic Personality Disorder. We're going to roll through, through these pretty rapidly. According to the DSM-5, 
narcissistic personality disorder consists of, quote, a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, a need for admiration, and a lack of empathy beginning by early adulthood as indicated by at least five of the following conditions. First, a grandiose sense of self-importance, for example, exaggerating achievements, expecting to be recognized as superior without actually completing the achievements. Second, is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, brilliance, beauty, or perfect love. Third, believes that they are special and can only be understood or should only associate with other special people or institutions. Fourth, requires excessive admiration. Fifth, has a sense of entitlement, such as an unreasonable expectation of favorable treatment or compliance with his or her expectations. Six, is exploitative and takes advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Seventh, lacks empathy and is unwilling to identify with the needs of others. Eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of them. Ninth, shows arrogant, haughty behaviors and attitudes. Okay, so that's the rundown. That's the official DSM-5 criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. And like all these diagnostic categorizations in the DSM-5, it's basically just an aggregation of symptoms. doesn't tell you really why those symptoms came to be, what's driving them, or what would be effective to treat a person that's struggling with narcissism. Nope, that's not going to be in the DSM-5. Um, it, but it does give you a sense of what modern-day clinicians are at least being told narcissism is, or narcissistic personality disorder is. Now, interestingly, the DSM-5 also has some alternative criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. I think these, I think these alternative criteria reveal that the authors of the DSM-5 aren't entirely satisfied with their diagnostic classification either. And so those indicate those criteria are first a moderate or greater impairment in person in personality functioning manifested by characteristic difficulties in two or more of the following areas. First, identity, excessive reference to others for self-definition and self-esteem regulation, exaggerated self-appraisal, inflated or deflated or vacillating between extreme between extremes or vacillating between extremes, emotional regulation mirrors fluctuation in self-esteem. So that's the first one, identity. And there we're getting at the questions of identity and self-definition. The second one is self-direction. Goal setting based on gaining approval from others. Personal standards are unreasonably high in order to see oneself as exceptional or too low based on a sense of entitlement, often unaware of own motivations. The third is empathy, impaired ability to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others excessively attuned to the reactions of others, but only if perceived as relevant to self, over or underestimate his of own effect on others. That's empathy. And then the fourth is intimacy. Relationship is relatively superficial and exists to serve self-esteem regulation, mutually constrained by little genuine interest in others' experiences or a predominance of a need for personal gain. So you need to have two or more of those identity, self-direction, empathy, or intimacy issues. And then after that, you have to have both of the following personality. And in addition to those, you have to have both of the following pathological personality traits. Grandiosity, which is an aspect of antagonism, which is feelings of entitlement, either overt or covert. Self-centeredness, 
from the holding to the belief that one is better than others, condescension towards others, and attention-seeking, that's another aspect of antagonism, excessive attempts to attract and be the focus of the attention of others, admiration-seeking. So you got to have those two, grandiosity and attention-seeking. But again, we're just seeing this as, a, as an aggregation of symptoms, as just a constellation of symptoms, not really theoretically driven. For that, we need to turn to the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, second edition by Vittorio Lingliardi and Nancy McWilliams. And here we're going to get much more about what's going on at depth. Like what's driving that constellation of symptoms that's more or less generally recognized by clinicians. They argue that, quote, the characteristic subjective experience of narcissistic individuals is a sense of inner emptiness and meaninglessness that requires recurrent infusions of external affirmation of their importance and value. Right. So here we're getting to the core. What's going on? There's the sense of inner emptiness, the sense of inner meaninglessness. And in order to deal with that, the person who's struggling with narcissism needs to suck up the admiration. That person needs to draw in the respect, the admiration, the affirmation, the compliments of other people. Diane Black has this great quote that illustrates this. She said, quote, big egos are big shields for lots of empty space, end quote. She's getting at that empty space within. And for somebody that doesn't have the felt experience or the lived experience of the, the void within, the deficit within of somebody that's narcissistically organized in their system, that can be really hard to understand. What's the response on the part of the person struggling with narcissism? To seek external affirmation of my importance and value. The different means that different folks with narcissistic dynamics, the different means that they use to try to fill that empty hole inside, to try to infuse meaning, the different means that they use determine the different types or the different kinds of narcissism, the different expressions of narcissism. And we'll talk about those. The PDM-2, the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual, second edition, says, quote, narcissistic individuals who succeed in extracting such affirmation in the form of status, admiration, wealth, or success may feel an internal elation, behave in a grandiose and arrogant manner, evince a sense of entitlement, and treat others, especially those perceived as of lower status, with contempt. It's almost like a, a narcissistic high, this internal elation. These folks get puffed up with a strong sense of superiority. They begin to look down on others. But the PDM-2 says that when the environment fails to provide such evidence, narcissistic individuals may feel depressed, ashamed, and envious of those who succeed in attaining the status that they lack. And the critical word here is shame. Shame. I did a whole series on shame in this podcast from episodes 37 to 49, 13 episodes on shame because I think it is such a driving force behind so many different symptomatic expressions, including narcissism. The PDM2 says that 
they often fantasize about unlimited success, beauty, glory, and power, and their lack of real pleasure in either work or love can be painful to witness. Now, for those of you who read my weekly reflections, we just started a series on daydreams on July 19th, 2023. And in that first weekly reflection on that topic, I suggested that your daydreams and fantasies can tell you a lot about yourself. And here we are, hearing how the daydreams and fantasies of those with narcissistic qualities are characterized by themes of unlimited success, beauty, power, glory. At the same time, there's a lack of satisfaction, a lack of pleasure in their actual lives. There's no way to fill up this gaping internal void with their real relationships and with their real activities. The BDM2 goes on to say that toward the neurotic end of the spectrum of narcissism, narcissistic individuals may be socially appropriate, personally successful, charming, and although somewhat deficient in their capacity for intimacy, reasonably well adapted to their family circumstances, work, and interests. In other words, you know, when you're more on the neurotic side of the continuum, they can function pretty well. Narcissists may even be charming like our dear Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willows. However, in contrast, the PDM2 says, people with narcissistic personalities at the more pathological levels, whether or not they are personally successful, suffer from identity diffusion, often concealed by grandiose, by a grandiose self-presentation, lack an inner-directed morality, and may behave in ways that are highly destructive and toxic to others. Okay, so let's take a look at what's going on here. Identity diffusion. What does that mean, identity diffusion? It means this this inner fragmentation, a lack of interior integration. And along with that, because the focus is on trying to get these inner needs for meaning, this, this inner void filled, there's not that much interest in morality. Therefore, people can behave in ways that are toxic, destructive, that do not consider or take into account other people's experience or the harm that can be caused in relationships. What are the key features of narcissistic personalities, according to the PDM2? The first, it's not really clear if there's a constitutional or maturational pattern. That's not really been settled if there's something going on in terms of temperament or something like that. The central tension or preoccupation is the inflation versus deflation of self-esteem. There is not really a focus on relationship for relationship's sake for people with a lot of narcissism. There's a focus on relationship in order to help me regulate my self-esteem. That's what it's about, to give me a sense of meaning, to give me a sense of purpose, to give me a sense that I am good. There is much more preoccupation with integrity needs than with relationship needs. Relationship needs are important to the degree that they can serve my integrity needs. There's an ordering here. And so you find that people are willing, people with narcissistic dynamics are willing to use other people to help them feel better about themselves. The central affects, according to the PDM2, the central emotions, 
are shame, humiliation, contempt, and envy. Shame. We're going to come back to that over and over and over again. If you want to understand what the primary driver of narcissism is, it is shame. I'm just going to tell you that full stop. I'm going to emphasize that over and over again. People who struggle with humiliation are dealing with shame. Ingle Molnar has this quote that says, quote, I have a very simple question to people who seem to suffer from excessive narcissism. Please name three other persons who are smarter and more capable than you in the field you work in. In most cases, they are utterly unable to answer that question honestly, end quote. Why? Because what happens is that if they begin to admit fault, if they begin to admit inadequacy, it's like the, the dam bursts open. There's no having a little bit of inadequacy. It's either I'm totally 100% per- perfect and okay, or I'm wretched. It's an all or nothing thing. So the rigidity that comes in here is really remarkable. What Brene Brown said in her book, Daring Greatly, she said, quote, when I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. I see the fear of never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, to belong, or to cultivate a sense of purpose. The reason people react narcissistically is because they are trying to survive. They are trying to protect themselves. They are trying to hold themselves together. They're trying to avoid falling apart into a fragmented mess that is unlovable, unnoticed, devalued, not worth anything. They don't look like that. They can look really tough. They can look powerful. They can look, even in some cases, admirable. They can look invulnerable, but they are struggling inside with a deep, pervasive sense of inadequacy. What is the characteristic pathogenic belief about the self? According to the PDM2, I need to be perfect to feel okay. I need to be perfect to feel okay. And so you will see narcissists declare that what they did was perfect that the speech they gave was perfect, that the way they acted, there was nothing wrong with that, that they were not guilty of any single thing. Jeffrey Kluger has this quote that, quote, there's a reason narcissists don't learn from mistakes, and that's because they never get past the first step, which is admitting that they made one, end quote. The characteristic pathogenic belief about others, okay, this is the really problematic belief that narcissists have about other people, is that, quote, others enjoy riches, beauty, power, and fame. The more I have of those, the better I will feel, end quote. So the more riches, beauty, power, fame, the more impressive I am, the more admired I am, the more famous I am, the more money I have, the more esteem I have, the more publications I've written, the the more that I am on social media, recognized, downloads, likes, whatever it is, then I will be filled. 
but it is a trap. It's like a hamster on a wheel. No matter how how fast you run, no matter how much of those affirming things you get, it's never going to be enough to fill that hole. So what are the central ways of defending? What's the what are the, the protective mechanisms that folks with narcissistic styles use? And according to the PDM, it is idealization and devaluation. These are two defenses, two coping mechanisms that we'll look at. So what is idealization? According to the APA dictionary, idealization is, quote, the exaggeration of positive attributes and the minimization of the imperfections or failings associated with a person, place, thing, or situation so that it is viewed as perfect or nearly perfect. That protects the individual from conscious feelings of ambivalence toward the idealized object. And so grandiose narcissists idealize themselves. They idealize their work. They idealize their achievements. They idealize who they imagine themselves to be. They see themselves as perfect. And this protects the narcissist from any uncomfortable feelings of ambivalence or uncertainty about his or her worthiness. It's almost like, in order to be good enough, I have to be perfect. I can't just be good enough. Devaluation is the flip side of the coin of idealization. Devaluation, according to the APA dictionary, is a defense mechanism that involves denying the importance of something or someone, including the self. So this is about saying that something is is no good at all. And I'm reminded of the 1974 film, The Godfather, Part 2, where Michael Corleone says to his brother, Fredo, you're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. You understand? So Michael Corleone devaluing his older brother, Fredo. And then Tigress Love said, quote, if you want to go from being adored to devalued in the blink of an eye, simply insult the narcissist, right? Because that's the quick shift. That's the quick shift from idealization to devaluation. There's not a lot of room in between for a nuanced, multifaceted understanding of the other person. Why? Because either the person needs to be idealized as someone who could meet my deep inner emptiness and fill that up, or who could help me with a sense of meaning in my life, or that person's just not valuable to me at all. This is how people with narcissistic dynamics utilize other people in the service of their own desperation. And Brie Bonche said, quote, relationship with a narcissist in a nutshell. You will go from being the perfect love of their life to nothing you do is ever good enough. You will give your everything and they will take it all and give you less and less in return. You will end up depleted emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and probably financially, and then get blamed for it, end quote. Okay, so the psychodynamic diagnostic manual, far more helpful in understanding what these dynamics are. But I want to go back to this 2011 book by Nancy McWilliams called Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. Again, this is the best book on personality styles and disorders I have found in my career. And 
she says on page 176, there is something missing from their inner lives. She catches on to how this is a deficit within the person struggling with narcissism. She says, preoccupied with how they appear to others, narcissistically organized people may privately feel fraudulent and loveless. And this awareness will kill them. That's my thought. This is so threatening to them. All right, so let's talk about drive, emotion, and temperament and narcissism. And I'm drawing this from Nancy McWilliams' Psychoanalytic Diagnosis book, 2011, the second edition. She says that, quote, most of our ideas about etiology are still untested, clinically generated hypothesis. And so what she means by that is we don't have a lot of data on this yet. But one of these ideas is that people at risk for developing a narcissistic character structure may be constitutionally more sensitive than others to unverbalized emotional messages. Specifically, narcissism has been associated with the kind of infant who seems preternaturally attuned to the unstated affects, attitudes, and expectations of others. All right, so it may simply mean that certain people are more sensitive to these kinds of unspoken, unverbalized emotional messages than others. She goes on to say, on a different note, in discussing entitled grandiose narcissistic clients, Kernberg has suggested that they may have either an innately strong aggressive drive or a constitutionally determined lack of tolerance for anxiety about aggressive impulses. So in other words, maybe there's something going on in the temperament, in the constitution of these individuals where they have just a lot more aggression or they may just not have very much anxiety about their aggression. And then as far as the main emotions associated with narcissistic personality disorder, shame and envy are recurrently stressed in the clinical literature. Feelings of shame and fears of being shamed pervade the subjective experience of narcissistic people. So important. Again, I'm hammering away at this again. Feelings of shame and fears of being shamed pervade the subjective experience of narcissistic people. They are terrified of being humiliated. They are terrified of being cut down. The centrality of shame. Again, I mentioned this before, episodes 37 to 49 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, a 13-part series of shame. Go listen to that. If you have not listened to that, go listen to that. You will not understand very much about narcissism if you don't get that narcissism is a response to feeling internally empty and ashamed. McWilliams says that, quote, some theorize that people get this way by having been used as narcissistic appendages themselves. Narcissistic clients may have been vitally important to parents or other caregivers, not because of who they really were, but because of the function that they fulfilled. The confusing message is that one is highly valued, but only for a particular role that one plays. And that makes children worry that if the real feelings, especially hostile or selfish ones, are visible, rejection or humiliation will follow. So many times people that grow up and have narcissistic dynamics treat other people in this narcissistic way were treated that way themselves. All right, so let's go on and discuss the defensive and adaptive processes in narcissism. McWilliams says that narcissistically structured people may use a whole range of defenses, but the ones they depend on most fundamentally are idealization and devaluation. 
These processes are complementary and that when the self is idealized, others are devalued and vice versa. So it's not very common. It might not be possible for someone who's narcissistically organized to idealize themselves and to idealize another person at the same time. If I idealize myself, I'm devaluing others. If I'm devaluing myself, I'm idealizing somebody else. And so this is never stable. There cannot be a sense that both you and I are good if I'm narcissistic. If I'm good, then you have to be bad. I look down on you. But if I'm feeling bad about myself, I look up to you because you might provide me the narcissistic supplies that I need to feel better about myself. But if you do that, if you give me those narcissistic supplies and then I get elated, I feel this internal elation because I'm now feeling filled up temporarily, then I'm going to look down on you. It's a terrible dynamic. McWilliams says that a related defensive position in which narcissistically motivated people are trapped concerns perfectionism. They hold themselves up to unrealistic ideals and convince themselves that either they have attained them, that's the grandiose outcome, or they respond to falling short by feeling inherently flawed rather than forgivably human. That's the depressive outcome. So perfectionism, really talked a lot about this in episode 85 of this podcast. Again, if I have to idealize myself, I have to be perfect. Or if I'm idealizing you, you've got to be perfect. The demand for perfection is expressed in chronic criticism of the self or others, depending on whether or not the devalued self is projected, and an inability to find joy amid the ambiguities of human existence. Things can never just be good enough. Some narcissistic people handle their self-esteem problem by regarding someone else, a lover, a mentor, a hero, as perfect, and then feeling inflated by identification with that person. So I feel better about myself because I'm connected to somebody that I'm idealizing. Some people, according to McWilliams, have a lifelong pattern of idealizing someone and then sweeping that idol off the pedestal when an imperfection appears. Perfectionistic solutions to narcissistic dilemmas are inherently self-defeating. One creates exaggerated ideals to compensate for defects in the sense of self that are felt as so contemptible that nothing short of perfection will make up for them. And yet, since no one is perfect, the strategy is doomed and the depreciated self emerges yet again. Those are the defensive and adaptive processes in narcissism. You've got to understand idealization and devaluation if you want to understand narcissistic dynamics. Those defenses are so important and they are all in the service of coping with the intensity of the shame. The terror of the shame, the humiliation, the fear of the humiliation. And all of that impacts how narcissists relate to other people. McWilliams has this great quote. She says, relationships between narcissistic people and others are overly burdened with the self-esteem issues of the narcissistic party. And I just kind of chuckle at that because that's so understated. She's not British, but that just smacks to me of British understatement. The relationships between narcissistic people and others are overly burdened with the self-esteem issues of the narcissistic party. Yeah, absolutely. And she says that, quote, one problem in helping narcissistically organized people is conveying to them what it would be like to accept a person non-judgmentally 
and non-exploitatively, to love others as they are without idealizing, and to express genuine feelings without shame. Narcissistic people have no concept of such possibilities. The therapist's acceptance of them can become the prototype for their emotional understanding of intimacy. So important to be able to get a more nuanced understanding of somebody else. To love them in their imperfections. To see both the good and the bad. Not to idealize the bad away and minimize it and and not to devalue the good away. McWilliams says that self-psychologists have coined the term self-objects for the people in our lives who support our self-esteem by their affirmation, admiration, and approval. The narcissistic person needs self-objects so greatly that other aspects of the relationship pale and may even be unimaginable. You have one role in my life. If I'm a narcissist, you have one role in my life, and that is to support my fragile self-esteem. It is to supply me narcissistically. It is to tell me that I'm okay. It is to fill me up. It is to fill that void inside up. And Ramani Durvasula says, quote, the narcissist is like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. No matter how much you put in, you can never fill it up. The phrase, quote, I, I feel like I'm never enough, end quote, is the mantra of the person in the narcissistic relationship. That's because to your partner, that's because to your narcissistic partner, you are not. No one is. Nothing is. McWilliams goes on to say, thus the most grievous cost of a narcissistic orientation is a stunted capacity to love. Despite the importance of other people to the equilibrium to the equilibrium of the narcissistic person, his or her consuming need for reassurance about self-worth leaves no energy for others except in their function as self-objects and narcissistic extensions. Hence, narcissistic people send confusing messages to their friends and families. Their need for others is deep, but their love for them is shallow. I think that's such a key quote. The need for others is deep, but their love for them is shallow. The narcissistic person does not have much to offer another person because they feel so empty inside. If you really understood at depth what they thought about themselves, they would not want to make a gift of themselves because they don't see themselves as lovable. They do not see themselves as good. They are so highly defended against that which is why their defenses of idealization and devaluation are so rigid. McWilliams goes on to say, a related aspect of the upbringing of people who become narcissistic is a family atmosphere of constant evaluation. The child is always aware of being judged, even if the verdict is positive. He or she knows on some level that there's a false quality to the attitude of constant admiration, And despite the conscious sense of entitlement that may issue from such background, it creates a nagging worry that one is a bit of a fraud. Undeserving of this adulation, it seems tangential to who one really is. Parents who constantly praise their children are constantly evaluating their children and their children know it. And what kids need is not this constant atmosphere of evaluation, of being judged, 
but just to be able to be with their parents and to have their parents accept them as they are and not to be evaluating them, not to be sort of sorting through their behaviors all the time to figure out what's good and bad and what's right and wrong and what's gratifying and not gratifying, but to just be with. Now, from here, McWilliams goes on to what is the experience of the narcissistic self? And she says, many of the self-experiences of people who are diagnosably narcissistic include a sense of vague falseness, shame, envy, emptiness, or incompleteness, ugliness, and inferiority, or their compensatory counterparts, self-righteousness, pride, contempt, defense of self-sufficiency, vanity, and superiority. So let's just stop there for a second. You can see how those are sort of the polar opposites. It's not enough to deny the ugliness. I have to be vain. It's not enough to deny that I'm inferior. I have to maintain that I'm superior, right? So it's not just a denial of the sense of inadequacy. It is the promotion of the polar opposite in its fullness and completeness. McWilliams says that Current describes such polarities as opposite ego states, grandiose, these all good versus depleted, all bad definitions of self, which are the only options narcissistic persons have for organizing their inner experience. Their sense of being good enough is not one of their internal categories. Narcissistically structured people are aware at some level of their psychological fragility. They are afraid of falling apart, of precipitously losing their self-esteem or self-coherence, for example, when they're criticized, and abruptly feeling like nobody rather than somebody. They sense that their identity is too tenuous to hold together and weather some strain. Their fear of the fragmentation of the inner self is often displaced into a preoccupation with their physical health. Thus, they are vulnerable to hypochondriacal preoccupations and morbid fears of death. So they can look like they are really large and in charge. They can look really aggressive. They can look really powerful, but they are afraid of falling apart, of losing a fragile sense of inner coherence. McWilliams goes on to say that one subtle outcome of the perfectionism of narcissistic people is the avoidance of feelings and actions that express awareness of either personal fallibility or realistic dependence on others. In particular, remorse and gratitude are attitudes that narcissistic people tend to deny. Remorse about some personal error or injury includes an admission of defects. And gratitude for someone's help acknowledges one's need. And folks that are truly narcissistic cannot handle that. They can't handle the admission of defects. Because remember, it's an all or nothing game. If I'm a little bit deficient in some area, then that means I'm worthless. Or if I have a little bit of a need for someone else, then I'm needy and dependent and I'm, I'm unable to function. So McWilliams goes on to describe the therapeutic implications of this kind of condition and about how we need to help individuals that are struggling with narcissism to just accept human imperfections, to be humble. She writes that unlike people who easily feel guilty and who handle their transgressions with efforts at reparation, 
narcissistically motivated people run from their mistakes and hide from those who would find them out. So when narcissistic people get stressed, they don't move toward people. They move away from other people. It reminds me of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned and they hid from God. They moved away from God. McWilliams says that, quote, narcissistic people have a deep shame about asking for anything. They believe that to admit a need exposes a deficiency in the self. They consequently get into situations where they are miserable because another person does not effortlessly divine their needs and offer what they want without their suffering what they see as the humiliation of asking, end quote. People with narcissistic dynamics that are prominent want you to read their minds. They want you to meet the great big gaping needs inside. They want you to fill the the void. They want you to provide them with a sense of meaning without them ever having to acknowledge it or to ask for it or to share it or to talk about it or any of that. You are supposed to mind read that and meet the needs. That's your job if you're in a relationship with a narcissist. Okay, so narcissism, really, when we get to the why of it, it's a maladaptive means of trying to meet needs, primarily the integrity needs. Let's remember the five integrity needs, the need to exist and survive, the need to matter, the need to have agency, the need to be good, the need for mission and purpose in life. And of those five, I think three of them are really prominent in narcissistic dynamics. The first, my need to survive, my need to exist. People grossly, grossly misunderstand narcissists and how fragile they are, how they believe their existence is on the line, that their survival is threatened when they are in this situation of being overwhelmed by shame. They will do almost anything to keep from being overwhelmed with shame. It feels like it's going to kill them, right? And so In order to make sure that none of that overwhelms, we can't even have a little bit of it. So these folks can seem shameless. But the fact is, is they they have deep, deep shame. They also need to matter. They feel so inconsequential, so small, so unlovable, so inadequate that they need to matter. And they need to be good. And I mean, what I mean by this is ontologically good. They do not have a sense of their ontological goodness, their essential goodness, their, their intrinsic goodness, that they're good because they are beloved sons and daughters of God. They are terrified of having some of their attachment needs met. To have the sense of being seen, heard, known, and understood, that's the second primary condition of secure attachment, according to Brown and Elliott, that's terrifying. Because they believe that if you saw them that you would feel the same way about them as they feel about themselves, that you would condemn them like they condemn themselves, that you would find them contemptible like they find themselves contemptible. It's almost unimaginable that they could be seen, heard, known, and understood and still loved. We need to remember the centrality of the shame and the emptiness. M. Scott Peck had this quote. He said, since narcissists deep down feel themselves to be faultless, 
It is inevitable that when they are in conflict with the world, they will invariably perceive the conflict as the world's fault. And M. Scott Peck, the psychiatrist, didn't go deep enough. Deep down, narcissists do not feel themselves to be faultless. Deep down, they feel themselves to be unforgivably warped, unforgivably flawed. He's making a mistake here. Deep down, deeper down, below the presumption of faultlessness, below that idealization of self, what's driving that is the exact opposite. So he's wrong about that. Ramani Durvasula said this, quote, the emptiness of the narcissist often means that they are only focused on whatever is useful or interesting to them at the moment. If at the moment it is interesting for them to tell you that they love you, they do. It's not really a long game to them. And when the next interesting issue comes up, they attend to that. The objectification of others, viewing other people as objects useful to his needs can also play a role. When you are the only thing in the room or the most interesting thing in the room, then the narcissist's charisma and charm can leave you convinced that you are his everything. The problem is that this is typically superficial regard and that superficiality results in inconsistency and emotions for the narcissistic person range from intense to detached on a regular basis. This vacillation between intensity and detachment can be observed in the narcissist's relationships with people, acquaintances, friends, family, and partners, work, and experiences. A healthy relationship should feel like a safe harbor in your life. Life throws us enough curveballs in the shape of money problems, work issues, medical issues, household issues, and even the weather. Sadly, a relationship with a narcissist can be one more source of chaos in your life rather than a place of comfort and consistency. So just a few numbers, you know, how many narcissists are there out there? Well, those that are diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. Well, according to Ronning Stim's 2013 uh, update on narcissistic personality disorders in the current opinions in psychiatry, that review of community samples suggested that 0.5 to 5% of people struggle with narcissistic personality disorder. Other community samples range up to 6.2%. It's generally assumed that more men than women are diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, up to 75%. And there's been some discussion of subtypes of narcissistic personality disorder, and I do want to discuss those at some length. Kenneth Levy, in a 2012 Journal of Clinical Psychology article titled, Subtypes, dimensions, levels, and mental states in narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder cited seven empirical studies that support the distinction between overt narcissism and covert narcissism. The overt form of narcissism has also been referred to as grandiose narcissism, oblivious narcissism, willful narcissism, exhibitionist narcissism, thick-skinned narcissism, or phallic narcissism. And the overt type of narcissism is characterized by grandiosity, attention-seeking, entitlement, arrogance, and little observed anxiety. You just don't see much anxiety in grandiose narcissists or overt narcissists. And this overt narcissism is more consistent with the description of narcissistic personality disorder in the DSM-5. These individuals can be socially charming despite being oblivious of others' needs, interpersonally exploitative, and also envious. Now, the covert form of narcissism is the one that people don't always recognize or understand very readily. 
The covert form has also been referred to as the vulnerable narcissism, hypersensitive narcissism, closet narcissism, or thin-skinned narcissism. And the covert type of narcissism is hypersensitive to others' evaluations, it's more inhibited, it's got more manifest distress, and is more outwardly modest, according to Kenneth Levy in his article. Gabbard, in 1989, described these these individuals as shy and quietly grandiose with an extreme sensitivity to slight, which leads to an assiduous avoidance of the spotlight. These folks are touchy. They're sensitive. Nancy McWilliams, in Psychoanalytic Diagnosis, wrote, quote, what narcissistic people of all appearances have in common is an inner sense of and terror of insufficiency, shame, weakness, and inferiority. Their compensatory behaviors might diverge greatly, yet still reveal similar preoccupations. End quote. And this is really, really important. Different types of narcissistic expressions all stem from the same underlying preoccupation. What is it? The shame. The shame. I'm going to go back to that shame. The terror of shame, the terror of insufficiency, weakness, inferiority, inadequacy. What you have to understand about narcissistic expressions is that they are compensatory behaviors. They're an attempt to compensate for that deep sense of shame, inadequacy, inferiority inside. And different people will attempt to compensate for that inner inferiority, that shame, that insecurity in different ways. Now, Brooke Schwartz had an article on choosingtherapy.com titled 14 Types of Narcissism and What to Know About Them. And as far as I can tell, she sort of scoured the literature and the internet to come up with any possible kind of narcissism, and she aggregated them all into one article. So I'm going to roll through these because it's useful to understand what different kinds of manifestations of the same underlying shame and terror of inadequacy can be expressed. So her first two are overt narcissism and covert narcissism. So She writes that overt narcissists are the prototypical variety of narcissists. They display grandiosity. They exaggerate their accomplishments. They engage in activities designed to impress others. Their overly inflated egos lead them to genuinely believe that they are more special and deserving than others. Further, they are incapable of acknowledging any faults or shortcomings in themselves, though they may be quick to point them out in others. Overt narcissism is typically accompanied by an extroverted personality and used to gain attention and build the audience for their boasting. Overt narcissists use their charm and charisma to convince others of their greatness. However, their their inability to feel empathy results in superficial relationships that lack genuine warmth or longevity. So you might be saying something inside, like, can we get some examples here? Can we like, can can you provide some kind of framework for us to understand this, some kind of example? Well, all right. So Mr. Toad, who I opened with in The Wind of the Willows, is an example of an overt narcissist. Some other ones that you might recognize. Colonel Nathan Jessup. He was the Marine Colonel in A Few Good Men. That Marine Colonel who felt himself superior to other, other branches of the military. He wanted respect from Tom Cruise. He wanted respect from lesser men. He's the one that said, you can't handle the truth. Fraser Crane, the psychiatrist 
played by Kelsey Grammer, another example of an overt narcissist. Gordon Gecko, the 1987 movie Wall Street, played by Michael Douglas. The signature line, greed, for the lack of a better word, is good. Dr. Gregory House in the TV series House, a medical drama. It aired from 2004 to 2012, played by Hugh Laurie. The Emperor Nero, who ruled Rome from 54 to 68 AD and fiddled while Rome burned. For those of you that are into comic books and superheroes, the superhero Homelander, played by Anthony, by Anthony Starr of the comic book series The Boys. He's the egotistical leader of the seven. How about a biblical example? Well, let's go to Absalom, King David's son. I discussed him at some length in episode 44 of this podcast. Remember him? He was the one that had a lot of vanity about his hair. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 to 26, it reads, Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his and when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head two hundred shekels by the king's weight. Like, who weighs their hair? Two hundred shekels. That's about five pounds of hair. Now in a year, I grow probably around hmm, maybe six ounces of hair. And this Absalom, he went and set Job's field on fire when Job would not intercede with him with King David. He was charming in a lot of ways. He would wheedle people at the gates. He was trying to undermine his father, had ambitions to take over the entire realm. He was an example of a narcissist in scripture. Let's go to covert narcissists. Let's review that, okay? Brooke Schwartz says that covert narcissists, also known as vulnerable narcissists, tend to appear shy, reserved, self-deprecating, and worried, despite experiencing immense emotional fragility, chronic envy, and difficulty with criticism. Covert narcissists tend to constantly compare and judge themselves against another person's happiness, possessions, and relationships. Because of this, they often spend time alone and may experience higher levels of suicidality than others with narcissistic personality disorder. So who are examples of covert narcissists? Well, in the comedy series Seinfeld, George Costanza is an example of a covert narcissist because he's always blaming his parents for what's wrong in his life. He has a grand sense of entitlement. He expects others to appreciate his specialness. He's comparing himself. He's contrasting himself. He's he's, He's judging himself. He's looking at other people's happiness, possessions, and relationships. Another one that I'm not aware of personally, but I've heard from sources, multiple sources, that Alan Harper in Two and a Half Men, he's played by the actor John Cryer, is also a covert narcissist. Now, I came across a really interesting article, some really fresh thinking by Alice Mills in Poema Chronicles titled, Five Signs of a Covert Narcissist, Judas Iscariot. And she writes that... The marks of a covert narcissist are not very different from those of most narcissists. They all wish to appear as important and particularly righteous or better than others. The main difference is that a covert narcissist lacks the aggression and overt behavior of most narcissists. And so she goes on to like explore Judas, 
right? So she describes some signs that Judas was a covert narcissist. For example, Judas in John 12, 5, he responds to Mary breaking an expensive bottle of perfume over Jesus' feet by saying, why was this ointment not sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? He's criticizing both Jesus and Mary. He's touting his own concern for the poor. That's what Mills is saying here. He's insinuating that this act of worship, this sharing of this expensive nard with Jesus, that it came at a cost to people that were hungry, people that were starving. He's virtual signaling here, is what Mills says. And he's also distracting from his own wrongdoing because you can see that in the next verse, according to Mills, it's not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. He stole from that bag. The poor were not going to get that money. He's protesting out loud. He's proclaiming his love of the poor while he's stealing in the same breath. That's what Mills is saying. And he also went on to obviously betray Jesus. And how did he do it? He did it with a kiss. How covert is that, Mills asks, right? He's pretending to be faithful to Jesus up till the very end. And so Judas, according to Mills, was trying to derive a sense of being whole, a sense of being complete by his association with Jesus, but Jesus wasn't doing what Judas wanted him to do. Now, Mills doesn't go into the psychology of this very deeply. I think what happened was that Judas idealized Jesus Jesus disappointed Judas. Judas had unrealistic expectations. Judas devalued Jesus. He came to hate Jesus because Jesus wasn't behaving in the way that he felt Jesus needed to behave in order to meet Judas's deep needs. And so he turned against Jesus. He idealized the priests. He sided with them, but then he de-idealized them too. He devalued them. He threw the money back at them and ultimately he killed himself. Covert narcissism. So let's roll through a few of these other ones that Brooke Schwartz in her article, The 14 Types of Narcissism and What to Do About Them from the May 10th, 2023 article in choosingtherapy.com. She's got Hypervigilant narcissism, grandiose narcissism, exhibitionist narcissism, sexual narcissism, vindictive narcissism, malignant narcissism, antagonistic narcissism, somatic narcissism, cerebral narcissism, spiritual narcissism, communal narcissism, and healthy narcissism. And those are in addition to the overt narcissism and covert narcissism that we already discussed. But the thing to remember is that these are just different flavors of narcissism, different behavioral expressions of narcissism all driven by that central concern around shame, around the inflation versus deflation of self-esteem, the sense of inadequacy, the deep void within, the need to fill that void with external supplies. You can see sexual narcissism, for example, with people that decide that they're going to play out these narcissistic concerns in the sexual arena, right? So it's going to happen in sexual relationships. They're going to need to be idealized sexually. They're going to need to idealize their partners sexually. And so yes, lacking empathy for sexual partners, that's what Brooke Schwartz is saying, of course, right? Vindictive narcissism, I think that's more about what happens when narcissists devalue. And some of, some of them do that with a much finer point on their revenge than others. Somatic narcissism is an interesting one. 
She says that somatic narcissists derive a sense of superiority, entitlement, and self-worth from their perception of their physical bodies. They use their figures and the physical space around them to express their narcissistic traits. It's all about their body. They present with confidence in their beauty, strength, and fitness. They tend to obsess over their appearance and criticize the appearances of others. They demonstrate underlying insecurity and low self-esteem, demonstrating their underlying insecurity and low self-esteem. Cerebral narcissists, rather than focus on the body, are focusing on the mind. These are intellectual narcissists. They need to be perceived as intelligent, as well-read, as brilliant. They use their intelligence against others. They, they measure everything in the, in the realm of the mind. Spiritual narcissists. These, this was an interesting one because I think this can happen in a lot of uh, Catholic contexts. That's where you derive your sense of well-being, your sense of worth from your faith and the ability to control, manipulate, and influence others. Okay, this could involve a lot of shaming of other people, fear-mongering, could be some kinds of spiritual gaslighting of other people. Spirituality and faith are brought into all conversations. There's a lot of judging others for their spiritual approaches. It's only one right spiritual way for folks that are struggling with spiritual narcissism. Communal narcissists, they see themselves as the ones that have the best potential, the most capability. They're the ones that are the best listeners. They're the ones that are virtue signaling about their self-sacrificing for the community. There's an irony there because in all of this sacrificing of themselves for the community, they're really doing that in this desperate attempt to meet their own needs. That's what's really driving it. It's not really being motivated by charity. So you can check that out if you want. That article is Brooke Schwartz's 14 Types of Narcissism and What to Do About Them and ChoosingTherapy.com. So how do you identify narcissism? Monique Mason of Pathways Family Coaching on July 3rd, 2019 wrote this article called The 10 Types of Narcissists, Causes, and Warning Signs. She says the warning signs of narcissism are these. She's got 15 of them, 16 of them. She, she has 16 of them. Number one, narcissists always bring the conversation back to themselves. Two, they tend to brag about their abilities and accomplishments. Three, they name drop. Four, they are really quite superficial and, and unable to be truly vulnerable. There's no such thing as a deep conversation with a true narcissist. Fifth, they are inclined to fish for compliments because of their exaggerated need for, valid, for validation. Sixth, they become... They can become hostile when criticized, even with constructive criticism. Seventh, they're perfectionistic. Eighth, they like to one-up everyone because they view themselves as superior. Ninth, they may not follow the rules because of their sense of entitlement. Ten, they are incapable of self-reflection and unable to, to take responsibility for their own actions. They like to play the blame game. Eleventh, they're control freaks, so they tend not to communicate very well, and they certainly don't work well as part of a team. The 12th, they possess an obvious lack of empathy for others. They really don't know what it's like to put yourself in someone else's shoes. The 13th is they may be overly critical of others. 14th, they lack boundaries. 15th, they have a lot of superficial friends, maybe on their social media accounts, but they are severely lacking in close or long-term friendships or relationships. And 16th in general, they just leave a wake of wreckage behind them wherever they go be it a series of broken friendships, intimate relationships gone seriously wrong, or horrible work experiences. So who are narcissistically organized people attracted to? Who, who are they drawn to? 
And according to Barry Davenport in an August 3rd, 2022 article, do you tend to attract narcissists in your life? Seven reasons why you may fall into this toxic type of relationship. She says, if you're good looking, physically attractive, if you are a people pleaser, if you're a giver, if you are successful, if you have a savior complex, if you're empathetic, if you're codependent, you are going to be more likely to be attractive to a narcissist. If you're someone who makes narcissists feel good about themselves, if you're ready with compliments, they like that. If you're someone that they see will reflect well on them in the eyes of other people, like the trophy girlfriend or the trophy boyfriend, oh, that's attractive, right? Lynn Nichols, similarly in her article, seven character traits that attract narcissists include kindness, loyalty, a determination to succeed, the ability to be teachable because the narcissist wants to be your teacher, empathy, having a servant's heart, and to remain in the fog. This is the most significant one in that article. Not catching on to the narcissistic dynamics, not seeing the manipulation. It's really important. Not catching on to the gaslighting. So how do you deal with a narcissist? This is the how aspect of this. And I just love this quote from Gestalt therapist, Dr. Eleanor Greenberg. She said, if I encounter a toddler with a machete, I may feel worried about the toddler, but I still get out of the way so that I do not get hurt. In the process of taking care of their own needs, many people with narcissistic personality disorder hurt those around them. They are swinging mental machetes, devaluing words and abusive actions, punchline, I believe that narcissists deserve our compassion, but compassion does not involve giving them permission to hurt other people or overlook any damage that they do. So I like this because it's balanced. It recognizes the deep needs that narcissists have, that they're deeply wounded, that they're deeply hurt, they've been harmed. But it doesn't mean that that gives them a pass to go about harming other people even if they are oblivious to it. From the 14 types of narcissism, what to do about them, that's the article by Brooke Schwartz. She says these seven things. To avoid confrontation, she says narcissists tend to have intense and aggressive reactions to criticism. When possible, pick your battles and avoid confrontation to help reduce your suffering. Secondly, set boundaries around what types of behaviors are appropriate versus behaviors that are not appropriate. You need to be firm and clear to name the unacceptable behavior clearly and restate the assertion as many times as needed. Third, to educate yourself, to learn about narcissism and its impact. That can help you understand your own experience, to find self-validation, to feel empowered, and to contextualize the narcissist's behavior. This education part is really, really, really important. I really agree with her on that. Fourth, don't take what they say personally. It may be tempting, Brooke says, to internalize what a narcissist says, but this may lead to unhealthy self-critical patterns. Remind yourself that a narcissist's opinions are simply judgments and not necessarily facts. Right, because most of the time it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about whatever they think is going to help with their self-esteem regulation issues. Fifth, seek out support. Surround yourself with others who can validate your experience in an important way is an important way of getting the emotional support that you might need. Just be mindful of what information you share about the narcissistic behavior to avoid further conflict. 
Sixth, avoid reinforcing narcissistic behavior. Be careful not to reinforce unwanted behavior such as grandiosity or praise-seeking. And seventh, practice self-care. And these are largely reinforced by Barry Davenport in a similar article, Do You Tend to Attract Narcissists in Your Life? Seven Reasons You Fall Into This Toxic Type of Relationship. She says, you got to develop firm boundaries. You'll develop self-confidence. Enlist a therapist or a coach. Again, do the research and don't make your looks a priority. And try not to blame yourself if you end up with a narcissist. So we're going to talk a lot more about how you deal with narcissistic behavior. I wanted to offer you what the professionals are saying. I wanted to offer you the best of what the secular literature is saying. I do not want you to think that this is all I'm going to offer you. It's going to be so much more as we continue through this sub-series on narcissism. We're going to cover a lot more in this podcast on narcissism. We're just getting started. And in that vein, if you are listening to this episode on Monday, August 7th, the day that it's first released, I have a special opportunity for you tonight. Tonight, Monday, August 7th, 2023, from 8.30 p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, I will have Catholic psychologist Dr. Peter Martin as a special guest. We're going to have a live episode where Dr. Martin and I discuss narcissism. It's going to be a free Zoom meeting for the first 30 minutes or so. Dr. Martin and I are just going to have an open-ended conversation about narcissism. And then after that, for the next hour, we're going to open it up to questions from our live audience about narcissism. Anything that you want to ask us about narcissism understood from a Catholic perspective. Go sign up for this, register for it, go to our Interior Integration for Catholics landing page at soulsandhearts.com slash IIC, that stands for Interior Integration for Catholics, soulsandhearts.com backslash IIC, all lowercase letters. There's a link to register for that Zoom meeting. You can also send me questions. If you can't make it, if you can't be there live with us, you can send me questions to my email address at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. Or even better, leave me a voicemail at my cell phone number, 317-567-9594, 317-567-9594, and I will play that voicemail on the air, and we will answer that question. If you have any questions or any difficulty registering for that, get on the horn to our office manager, Patty, at admin at soulsandhearts.com and ask her. Also, just a reminder, check out our weekly reflections at soulsandhearts.com backslash blog. We're now in that series on daydreams and fantasies, and I just last Wednesday put out an annotated bibliography of more than 25 resources that I use in doing research on different Catholic topics, especially moral topics. So I give you the scripture commentaries, the catechisms, the reference works on Catholic doctrine and dogma, the Catholic dictionaries and encyclopedias, an atlas, the biblical chronologies, all kinds of resources that I personally use in doing the research for these podcast episodes and also for my weekly reflections. So check those out. And you can sign up for those weekly reflections by email by going to our homepage, soulsandhearts.com. And just click on the blue box that says, get Dr. Peter's Weekly Reflections in my email inbox each Wednesday. Finally, an open invitation to you to call me on my cell any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I've set that time aside for you for conversation hours, 317-567-9594. And we can have a 10-minute or maybe 15-minute conversation about any of the topics that come up in these 
podcast episodes and my weekly reflections. Would love to talk to you about those things. This is not a clinical consultation time. I can't do that for you, but we can talk about the themes that come up for you here. Or if you have questions about the interior therapist community, or if you have questions about the resilient Catholics community, certainly talk about those as well. And with that, we'll wrap this by invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Pray for us.